coming up. What an excellent day for skeletons. Well, howdy, folks, and welcome to Minute 6 of The Exorcist Minute, a show where we endeavor to examine, extrapolate, and excavate The Exorcist Minute by Terrifying Minute. My name is Lester Clark. And I'm Keenan Diaz. And we'll be your holy guides on this journey through what some have called the scariest movie of all time. Right, so our minute begins with the old man looking off into the distance. And it ends in the office of the curator of antiquities in Mosul, on a close-up of a head of a large stone statue. So once again, folks, let us get into the mood. I want to read for you part of Blatty's book that deals with this particular minute, just to get us in the mood. And also uh, because I think it reveals something about our man in khakis that is going to come up later. So here we go. A reading from the book of Blatty. Someone wheezed from within the Chaikana, the withered proprietor shuffling toward him, kicking up dust in Russian-made shoes that he wore like slippers, groaning backs pressed under his heels. The dark of his shadow slipped over the table. Come in, shy Hawaja. The man in khaki shook his head, staring down at the laceless, crusted shoes caked thick with debris of the pain of living. The stuff of the cosmos, he softly reflected. Matter. Yet, somehow, finally, spirit. Spirit and the shoes were to him but aspects of a stuff more fundamental, a stuff that was primal and totally other. The shadow shifted. The curd stood waiting like an ancient debt. The old man in khaki looked up into eyes that were damply bleached, as if the membrane of an eggshell had been pasted over the irises. Glaucoma. Once, he could not have loved this man. He slipped out his wallet and probed for a coin among its tattered, crumpled tenants, a few dinars, an Iraqi driver's license, a faded, plastic calendar card that was twelve years out of date. It bore an inscription on the reverse. What we give to the poor is what we take with us when we die. The card had been printed by the Jesuit missions. He paid for his tea and left a tip of fifty fills on a splintered table the color of sadness. Okay, and once again, I gotta say, I love Blatty's writing. It is so vivid, so illustrative. You can see the dust and the old shoes, but I read this part because I want us to remember as we go forward, as we meet our other players in this story, everyone, everyone is possessed by something, in the grip of something. Everyone is struggling with some guilt. Everyone has skeletons in the closet about something. And so when our exorcist shows up, and folks, I think we can finally give up the ghost here. This is our exorcist. This is Father Marin. And he I, is- I thought the exorcist was some scary monster. Right? <laughs> with I the Babadook. He was, right? He was hanging out with the Babadook and drinking- uh, <laughs> The Babadook and Godzilla and Frankenstein. Yes. Don't don't write in. I know that Frankenstein is the name of the doctor and not the monster. I just wanted to Wait be clever. Wait a minute. I'm trying to be clever. You know, I would, I would argue that uh, Dr. Frankenstein is the monster. <laughs> but but yet, uh, Father Marin, he is such a wonderful character, and I didn't want this little moment to slip by where he reflects that once he could not have loved someone, because I I can't remember if, if his skeletons are explored in the movie. I mean, 
I guess we have ample time to scrutinize all the scenes. But from what I remember, when he shows up later, we get this sense of safety. We get this sense that we are in good hands, that everything is going to be all right. And we could be forgiven for thinking, oh, that's because Father Marin is so saintly and so pure. He's holier than Karis. He's holier than the other characters. And so he can fight this demon. Not so. In fact, that is or was Father Marin's sin the sin of holier-than-thou, the sin of pride. And yet, despite that, despite his sin, we still feel a sense of goodness and safety when he is around, and that is very, very important later. But for now, just keep that in mind, because I think that is one of the messages of this story. It is interesting, as you look at uh, Max von Sydow's performance, how mm. much he... We, we don't know that he's a priest yet, right, as we're right. watching this, if we're seeing this for the first time. But right. he does have that, you know... Christian sense of of uh, love extended out to these strangers. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, the movie around him, the the design of it is hostile looking uh, mm-hmm. and sounding because we have all of the this clanging and and these uh, voices everywhere around the soundscape of him. Yes. But he looks up at the um, the man who's giving him the tea with such uh, empathy. And I was actually going to mention that. So yeah, Father Marin, I feel good that we can now call him Father Marin. Um, he gets up from the table and uh, he hands the money to the proprietor and he looks at him and he lingers. And I think in that part, we can see uh, this depth of kindness and gentleness in him, despite whatever he's he's going through uh, in his own head, he still has time to look at this guy and to see him. And again, I really like what Max von Sydow does here. Right. It's like genuinely, uh, again, the way that Christians are, are are meant to be, this sort of impossibly loving um, idea of humanity, right? That mm-hmm. that Christians will strive to to do their entire lives towards that, right? Where this is a man who says, you know, basically, can I get you anything else? Can I get you any tea? That's my mm-hmm. job. And and yeah. uh, and but yet Father Marin is looking at him with such love for, oh, thank you for offering that. Yes, yes. And then we finally figure out where that noise is coming from. It is a blacksmith shop across the way. Uh, I love the change in rhythm, that steady rhythm we've been hearing this whole entire time. Folks, this has been this started in the previous minute, and it has been going on this entire time. But it changes when one of the men stops hammering to wipe his brow. And then he turns and he catches Father Marin looking at him. And we see that this guy is the one with the glaucoma. Uh, right. So that's an adaptation from the book where... Yes. The, tea, the tea master it has glaucoma and here it's the blacksmith. Right. So now I got to wonder because in movies, again, we were, we're talking about like every shot is intentional. Everything has a reason. And the noise and the blacksmith shop wasn't in the book. And, and it was the tea shop owner who had the white eye. The blacksmith also isn't in the original screenplay. Um, right. The most current version that we can find online is one that um, has revisions up into December of 1972. <laughs> so the extra starts to go into production in August of 1972 and shoots <laughs> for a little bit over 100 days. So this would be near the end of production, the script right. that we have, and there is no um, blacksmith there. So I can only assume that this is Friedkin's edition. Right. Mostly, or, you know, mm-hmm. or it would have been with Blatty's approval, right? Because Blatty was mm-hmm. the producer and would have been on right. set. But but perhaps they found this um, this look on set, which would not be atypical, right? You get to set and it's not exactly what you've pre-planned even um, in pre-production. You say, oh, look at this thing over here. That's very interesting. Right, right. And I mean, the movie is its own thing. It doesn't have to follow the book exactly. Right. And maybe it shouldn't, right? Maybe, you know, I can, I can think of a bunch of examples when uh, the movie does a a wonderful job and then you go and you read the book and it's not 
the case. There's there's some iconic piece of uh, the story missing from the original material. I think that many uh, say Stephen King books. I, I feel mm-hmm. like it's okay to to criticize this or, or feel like it's criticizing because he's oh. pretty open as well. Like mm-hmm. several Stephen King films are better than their source material. So mm-hmm. we 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 often say like, oh, the book is always better, which isn't the case when you look at something like um, Taylor Hackford's adaptation of Dolores Claiborne, which mm-hmm. is is much much better than the book. Yeah. One example that immediately came to mind, and I don't know, maybe because his spirit is still here, but, uh, you know, we mentioned The Godfather (laughs) earlier. And I mean, that is that is a film that uh, will be forever remembered, you know, in the annals of history as as one of the greatest. And I remember watching it and then going to read the book. And I I still like the movie. The book is is just not near the same level as the as the movie it is mm-hmm. um I, I don't think it even has the same kind of aspirations as mm-hmm. as the movie does it, it it seems to be content to be sort of a um oh a what's the word lurid uh sort of look at uh oh mm-hmm. isn't it crazy what mobsters do right. there's weird orgies at the academy awards uh things mm-hmm. like that Right, the seamy underbelly of uh, of right. uh, the mafia. Yeah. From there, we have another abrupt cut. The sound of the hammering is replaced by the quiet ticking of clocks inside the office of the curator of antiquities. From the clock face, we see that it's five minutes past noon, and we get a glimpse of some ancient statue heads. I was not able to find out uh, what these heads are of. I wonder if maybe they could be the faces of Ahura Mazda and Ahriman possibly, uh, from the Zoroastrian faith. Zoroaster was uh, the first guy to say that there is one good god and one bad god. Uh, and this bad god, Ahriman, uh, was sort of influential in the shaping of our Satan being the arch nemesis of God rather than just one of his uh, random angels. That's So that's Satan with a capital S. Mm. Um, now, again, I, I don't know if that's what these faces here are, but it would totally fit. It's from ancient Persia. So quite possibly. Yeah, Um, if anyone has any information, I'd love to know that because we do spend a a lot of time looking at them and they don't look like uh, the artifacts that Marin was pulling out of uh, the site of Nineveh. Um, Mm -hmm. They are ambiguous enough, I think, uh, maybe because you know more about, you basically said everything I know about Zoroastrianism Mm -hmm. in the one one sentence there. (laughs) Uh, But these faces don't particularly look menacing or loving um, as they're shown in the movie, at least. Mm. I kind of got the feel that the first one was, was good and the second one was sinister but maybe that's just the 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 second one seems a little bit more ruined you know right. um, it seems a little bit more broken there seems to be like a kind of like a glasgow smile happening oh it. gosh yes um, yeah <laughs> now but, that you uh, say that yes of course it looks like the black dahlia murder yeah the first one seems a little bit more complete <laughs> and it has this this uh, wonderful illustrious beard and and the second one seems a little bit more beaten up so uh maybe maybe that says a little bit more about me i'm just uh, <laughs> making judgments on uh on on appearances which is not a good thing Ancient religions, yes. Yes. Uh, But I I do think that the sound transition that you're pointing out is so interesting. So Mm. um, we have in in our previous minutes had just an overwhelming amount of sound, uh, Mm. whether it is wind or whether it is all the workers on this ziggurat who are are digging and constant, constant dialogue in the background. We have all this dialogue that, that we know is dialogue. We can't understand it, right? Right. And then we have, as you point out, these wind noises that are, uh, and we have these musical tones that then become something fly-like or insect-like or buzzing-like. Mm-hmm. And then when we get out of that, 
then we replace that with more Arabic speaking that we can't understand, more mm-hmm. clanging metal on metal. And then, yes, as we have the blacksmith who stops working, um, the sound changes, but we still have some clanging somewhere in the background. And yes. in fact, in the over the shoulder of Father um, uh, of Father Marin looking at um, the man with glaucoma, we yeah. see another man behind him doing other metalwork. Yes. So it's like and, there's no peace possible in, right. in Father Marin's brain. This is the buzz of humanity, you could even say, right? Right. I mean, we're talking about flies. We're talking about locusts. But we're also talking about uh, human beings just doing human being things. Speaking of that, uh, you know, I can't see a blacksmithing scene without thinking as a uh, a film history teacher, as I mm-hmm. often do, of the very first film with actors. Uh, I don't know if you know this, Lester. Mm-hmm. Uh, the oldest film that we know where we have actors pretending to be characters is from 1893, and it's mm-hmm. directed by William Dixon at the Edison Studios. And okay. so the first time that we ever had actors uh, playing other characters who were not, say, hey, I'm myself and I'm moving my arms so you could see right. motion. It yeah. was actually three actors portraying blacksmiths in the studio, oh. the Black Mariah at the Edison Studios. So there's something about that that is, um, uh, you know, the early films were just uh, built around movement, right? Like, right. hey, we have this camera that can capture movement, so let's yeah. just get a shitload of movement in front yeah. of us, right? And so there's something about that Oh my God, it's a train. Move. Right, exactly. Oh, the train is coming right at us. Yeah, exactly. So the very first one that we have of that is just three guys uh, blacksmithering. Do you possibly think Friedkin had that in mind when he uh, when he put our our three blacksmiths in there. I, I would say not. A lot of other filmmakers from his generation do go back to those early days and put mm-hmm. in little um, homages to things like that. So like Scorsese, mm-hmm. who would be the same generation as uh, Friedkin. The last shot of Goodfellas is mm-hmm. similar to the last shot of The Great Train Robbery. Uh, oh. So we do have some. It's the exact same shot. You'll, you'll look at that in our uh, you know in the Goodfellas podcast, I suppose. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that it's for me. It's just like it expresses so much movement. And so mm-hmm. as Marin is like this man who's slowing down physically, it helps mm-hmm. to express like his overwhelming uh, um, state of mind. Incidentally, there is a Goodfellas minute. So yeah, folks, if Goodfellas is, uh, is a movie that you are into, go check that out as well. Oh, yes. I actually do have another question now that I think about Ooh, it. So, okay. Oh, gosh, I hope we're not going over our time, but oh, no. I, I wanted to speak about time. So the transition mm-hmm. from outside into the um, the antiquities office is this clock. Uh-huh. And, you know, you really were having me think a lot about, you know, uh, how much we take for granted through the visual nature of uh, of film, like whether mm-hmm. this is Pazuzu or Satan or some other devil or right. whether these things in Iraq are actually connected to things in Georgetown. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that, that this reminds me of uh, with this transition where we're just looking at this clock is how much time do you think has passed between the Iraq sequences and the Georgetown sequences? Um, oh. Something something about film makes it feel right that this is causing the next thing to happen or right. it's immediately after. But we have no indication of that. You are absolutely right. I didn't even think about that. I was caught up in trying to discern how many days have gone by uh, with Father Marin in Iraq because I'm looking at the sun. I'm looking at, okay, the sun is is rising. The sun is setting. Okay, it's it's noon now, but like it was in the West, you know, with the Southwest wind and everything like that. So I had my hands full trying to figure <laughs> that out. Right. Um, are these sequences in Iraq in 1973? Are they mm, 15 years earlier? We don't really have any right. way to know that time is an enigma Kim. 
<laughs> Who um, can say where the time goes? Time is a Pazuzu. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think that is it for this minute. There's a bunch of stuff that I want to go over talking about ancient Sumeria, ancient Mesopotamia, and, and those religions, and then how they relate to the Abrahamic religions. And we'll talk about Abrahamic religions as well, um, but that's going to be in the minutes coming up. And of course, we're going to get to talk about our guy Pazuzu again. But for this minute, I think we are good. Keenan, is there anything that you want to add? No, I'm looking forward to learning more about ancient religions. All right. Well, I think that is it. Keenan, are you thinking what I'm thinking? I think I am, Lester. All right. So, folks, until next time, the, the power, power of blacksmithing, blacksmithing compels, compels you. you.